0: This Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace, the renowned website builder that helps you share your story with the world in the most beautiful way. Establish a personal brand, portfolio, or e-commerce store at squarespace.com and use the offer code Guardian to get 10% off.
1: Exploring archetypes this week, investigating how we are shaped by myth in a podcast which examines the fables that underpin our daily lives. Catherine Marcel goes in search of a fantastical, paradoxical creature who plays a starring role in the tall tales spun by politicians, bankers and captains of industry alike with her polemic, Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner? But first, we welcome the writer and musician Amit Chowdhury, whose latest novel, Odysseus Abroad, is modelled on episodes from Homer. He talked to Claire Armistead about the journeys he charts in the novel, journeys from Bengal to the UK, and from Warren Street to Belsize Park, as well as the voyage through the body travelled by each morsel of our food, and how this portrait of an uncle became a conversation with James Joyce. He began by reading a section from the book where Ananda has just arrived at his uncle's belsize park bed But Rangamama has gone off to the toilet, leaving our wanderer to reflect on the mysterious bodily functions of Western heroes.
2: This is a novel about a nephew and an uncle, both of them from India. The nephew is a student in a college in London. The uncle has retired. Although he's made a lot of money, he lives as a tramp would in a bedsit in Belsize Park. The novel is set in one day in July in 1985. The nephew, who's called Anundo and whose pet name is Pupu, does a few things, wakes up in the morning, does a few things, and then goes to visit his uncle in Belsize Park. All the things that happen in that day are structured episodically on corresponding episodes in Homer's The Odyssey. Over here, the bit I'm going to read out, we have Ananda having just arrived at the bedsit in the afternoon, and he wants to go out with his uncle, but his uncle, as usual, is doing stuff, mainly to do with maybe the toilet, bowel movements. He's preoccupied with those things all the time. This is the bit when the uncle's gone off to the loo, and Ananda is by himself in the bedsit. He'd gone to do the small job, a voyage out with Poo was a thing of joy, and he didn't want it spoiled by an urge to pee coming over him. Once it did, he'd be seized by it. So now he was in the loo, wringing himself dry. It took minutes, and patience. It was notable that heroes in Europe had no bodily functions as such, or encumbering relatives. Neither Hercules nor James Bond, for that matter, interrupted their antics and missions because they had to visit the toilet. When morning came they didn't bother to brush their teeth, they jumped out of bed in pursuit. For Bond saving the world took precedence over everything. The furthest he went towards his hygiene was shaving, an exhibition of his pheromonic powers which was rudely cut short, depending on context, by a deadly insect, a treacherous consort or a Soviet spy. So even this one act of his humble daily toilet was made tantalising by being never completed, and Bond was seen again and again brusquely wiping off what remained of the lather with a towel. This detail both unsettled and inspired ananda and his uncle. They, Nambi Pambi Indians, would have assiduously washed the lather off their face before drying their cheeks. Bond had no time for niceties, nor did he have an aunt or father calling him on the phone in the midst of his fights or demanding to know where he'd gone in the last seven days. It was a peculiarity of Western culture, this immersion in individuality and the pretense that hemorrhoids or family didn't undermine or subvert the frame of action. It was what made its myths so free-floating and fabulous. And this transcendence was what shaped the colonial project. They simply wouldn't have conquered the world if they'd paused to brush their teeth or vanished to do the big job. The latter, Anandu was pretty sure, was the reason there was no Bengali empire. Although his uncle had embarked on his great journeys in the 40s and 50s, Silhet to Shilong, shillong to london and from being a school matriculate working as a part-time used car salesman in shillong to a full-fledged chartered shipbroker who ended up as a senior manager at philip brothers in spite of this the grand journey he focused on daily was an internal one not psychological not internal to do with encouraging the food he'd taken the previous day to make its proper unfettered way through esophagus Elementary canal, intestines and colon to its final and complete escape, helped along by violent tides of water. For in the morning, Ananda knew, his uncle, after his breakfast of syrupy coffee and half a spoon of honey and a quarter of toast, would drink ten glasses of water to cleanse his organs and send the waste within on a burst of energy to its bigger journey.
0: Amit, that is a very intimate introduction to one of the central characters known as Ragamama, although he's actually called Radesh. That's right. It's fascinating, you mentioned the Odyssey there at the beginning of that, but actually that recalls more to me Leopold Bloom from Ulysses. Yeah. Because Leopold Bloom, unlike the English heroes that he's talking about, does talk about his inner workings, doesn't he?
2: He does, he does, absolutely. So the novel is structured on the Odyssey, But the cue to structuring it in that particular way, of course, comes from Ulysses. But also, it's true that the person I based it on, the uncle that I based this character on, himself was really preoccupied, like many Bengalis are, but in him, this preoccupation took an extreme form, the digestive process and by bowel movements. Uh, He he was preoccupied by food, uh, with food, and with what happened to it.
0: This is an uncle of yours?
2: An uncle of mine.
0: So to what extent is this autobiographical? We've met the main character, the student, before. Particularly, in a, it, I remember in, in, in Afternoon Rag, your yeah. second novel from yeah.
2: 1993. Yeah.
0: To what extent is this you?
2: So the young man is me to a certain extent, of course. But I mean, I have to say two things. I mean, I wouldn't say it's autobiographical in the sense that, as with many of my novels where I take material from my own life, I don't actually talk about the important things if there are any important things in my own life. I talk about things like this. I mean, uh, somebody waking up and going to meet their uncle and what happens during that day. That is not in any conventional sense the, the kind of stuff that autobiography is supposed to be about, which should be about all the kind of things that make you what you are. It is about what makes you what you are, but only in a very kind of oblique sense. It's more to do with all the bits that happen between the important moments, my take on the autobiographical. And the other thing I wanted to say was, it's only at a certain point of time that I thought I would bring this material together with the story of the Odyssey. And once I did, all kinds of things began to fall in place. And given that Joyce was also a precursor and Ulysses, uh, the the whole business of bowel movements and all of that But also, you know, the other kinds of movements, other kinds of journeys could be sort of become a part of of the world of the book. So to give you two instances, and the book is about several journeys. It's about the journeys that these people have made to end up in London, where they are at different points of time. They've made these journeys towards the UK. It's about the journey that Ananda makes from Warren Street to Belsize Park and back again. It's about the journey that food makes. From the mouth to the rectum, that water makes. It's about the journey that the soul makes across worlds. This is something that the uncle is also preoccupied with as much as he's preoccupied with bowel movements. What happens to the soul? Is there an afterlife? Part of this is reflected in his reading, his obsession with the pan book of horror stories. Part of it is, is kind of Mm, reflected in his new discovery, Stephen King, because he's running out of the pan-book of horror stories, but his general kind of interest in stories about the afterlife. And as it happens, coincidentally, that too is a reference then to Joyce because the transmigration of the soul, metempsychosis, is something that Joyce is always playing around with in, in his book.
0: This has been talked about as a modernist novel, and I'm really interested in the fact that it references, on the one hand, Ulysses and Joyce, but on the other hand, James Bond and the pan book of horror. So it's a fusion novel, isn't it? It's a fusion (laughs) novel in a lot of different ways.
2: I mean, to write an epic in the modern day, as the modernists taught us, you have to write a mock epic. It has to be a parody. But the intention is not only to mock or to poke fun at, it's to deal with the paradox that... The hero today is the little man. The hero today is partly a comic figure. So at one time you had the the great epic heroes and you had Odysseus. Even Odysseus, in, in a certain sense, has to be a comic figure because the name, one of the meanings of the name Odysseus is troublemaker. So, I mean, even then the gods in the Greek epics, as in the Hindu epics, were often irrational, querulous creatures. So there's comedy in the universe at large and in the modern day in the modern day of being anonymous having a workplace to go to catching your bus or train in the morning there's something epic about that but it's also human and comic so th- those things yeah those things have to come together the epic and the banal
0: you make the point that epics are actually full of little miniature moments
2: mm-hmm. they're not
0: all about big heroic gestures and stands and journeys
2: certainly i mean especially in the the indian epics for me, the great instance of this is a wonderful fresco in Mahabalipuram. It's, it's a kind of place where temples were built a very, very, very long time ago. But just near the temples is this astonishing fresco, which should be one of the great acknowledged masterpieces of sculpture in the, in the world. It's called Arjun's Penance. So it's a storytelling fresco about Arjun and what happened to him in the course of that epic. But it has several comic moments, but it also has this kind of miniaturist telescoping because right near the fresco is a sculpture of a monkey sorting out lice from another monkey's hair. Now, those are the kind of things that delight me about the epics, that they're not only about the big action, but these small irrelevant things.
0: It's set, as you said, in North London, this very small square of North London. It's a sort of about a three mile stretch. But it conjures their Indian backstory, and likewise it it references the heroes of the Western canon, but also Tagore. Tell us, that's also part of the fusion of it.
2: Sure. Both of these men are, the young man, 22 years old, and the older man in his 60s are Bengalis. They are also both of East Bengali origin. So, the uncle was actually born in silhet, which now right now is in Bangladesh, and he would be part of that kind of displacement after partition. but at the same time, they come from this cosmopolitan middle class background formed by the Bengal Renaissance and Tagore and all of that they 're both very proud of that in in their different ways, and so they they also see themselves as quite different from but some are related to the Muslim Bangladeshi Silheti waiters who comprise the world of Indian restaurants in London. So whenever Anand, the young man, visits these restaurants, he feels somehow close to his parents' world, but he also completely distant from it because he comes from this Tagorean world. Well, they seem to come from another world, but that's the way he interprets it. Now, Tagore is a matter of contention in the book because... The young man is having Tagore shoved down his throat by the uncle, for whom Tagore is the only poet ever. And and this Ananda deeply resents. So Tagore is an irritant to the young man because of his uncle's kind of unbridled advocacy of Tagore. Now, Tagore with his beard, his kind of transcendental appearance, is posited subtly as a kind of Zeus figure, Olympian presiding over these human beings, untouched by what happens to them. That's what he is in the book. You don't have to know the ways in which I'm playing around with the epic. It could still stand as just a story about a young man meeting with his eccentric uncle in London and them doing something together.
0: There isn't a woman, is there? There isn't a Molly Bloom figure in it. Well, there is, there's his mother, but yeah. is the implication that she's going to be waiting for them somehow? There's just two men by themselves.
2: Right. It's two men by themselves. There are references to and descriptions of women. So there's the mother who's just left, just left before the story begins. She's gone back to India and this part of the reason for Ananda feeling homesick and she's a constant presence through the book in her absence. She is a figure who's conjured up as somebody who waited for a long time. She waited to get married to her husband. She waited to give birth to Anandu. She gave birth to him quite late when she was 37 years old. Uh, She then worked in London supporting her husband and her brother. She waited to go back home. So she's somebody who's waited and thereby she's Penelope. She's the mother who waited at one time for things to happen to her. But then when she is in London now with Anandu, she has fought for him on his behalf with the noisy neighbors who live upstairs. So in that capacity. She's also Athena. She is the protectress. And as it so happens, she does flash her eyes. So she does have large eyes, as my mother did. And in that sense, she is the goddess of the flashing eyes, as Homer refers to Athena. So again, it's a way of organizing the material on many levels. And then the other woman is Hilary Burton, the first year tutor that Ananda had and never got on with, but whom he lusted after. So there are those references.
0: Music plays a very important role in your life, doesn't it? You are a musician as well as a writer, and it sort of washes around in the background of your novels. Tell us about how it relates to your writing.
2: Um, It's difficult for me to say how it relates to my writing, because when I write, I don't think of myself as a musician. I forget that I'm a musician. And when I'm a musician, I do forget also that I'm a writer. But yes, it keeps coming up in my novels. And I would say that the only connection between myself as a writer and myself as a musician is the fact that both as a musician, especially as a composer in my kind of non-fusion project and as a writer, I'm very interested in background sound. I'm very interested in sound, in soundscapes. And that's because partly I'm interested in the everyday becoming available to us not only through image but through sound, and especially the invisible, as it impacts on us constantly. So even in this book, it's a summer's day which allows Ananda, towards the beginning of the story, to lift up the window and allow the street, as it were, to come in. And that always has been a big thing for me. And that's why, in a certain kind of cinema, Jah Renoir or Satyajit Ray, I always listen very closely through the soundtrack Because the movie is telling us about the characters you see before us, but the soundtrack is telling us about what's happening in the next street, which you don't see and you will never see. And so there's a constant impacting upon us and on life by the invisible. And that I'm interested in both as a musician and as a writer.
0: In this novel, it's very there, there are the people upstairs, aren't there? Who, who obviously have there's another life going on upstairs that we just know from them rushing up and down the stairs and That's banging right. on the That's ceilings right. and yeah. things. One thing that fascinates me about this is, if you're listening to this on this podcast, you're going. It sounds huge, sounds like a huge novel, but it's not a huge novel. It's mm-hmm. quite a slender novel. How have you managed to compact so much into such a slim form?
2: My kind of tendency, right towards the beginning, you mentioned afternoon rag. Strange and Subliminal, most of our novels, except The Immortals, I've tended to to compress. I want to compress. And even here, even the references to the various texts I've talked about are there all the time, but they're very compressed, they're covert. And that's something that I've just kind of tended towards, and then I've tried to argue for that form of compression. It might have to do with the fact that I love craft, I love tactility, I love poetry as a form, and I love not saying, and that's the way I shape my works, and that's the reason I've always had to argue for this kind of novel, because the Indian novel in English after Rashti, has been seen to be compendious. But as I just said, even in the epics in India, we have that miniaturist impulse, and it's a very, very strong tendency. I get it from there. I also get it from European literature and Western literature, uh, my kind of tendency is to compress. I think Joyce also compresses, but he compresses on a, on, a, on a large scale, and he compresses through several pages. But I'm I'm drawn to that as an aesthetic.
0: Do you think of yourself as an English writer or an Indian writer?
2: I think of myself as an Indian writer, but not as a writer of India or about India. I quarrel with any kind of writing of nation, I see myself as a writer, multiply located, as this book proves, in Indian writing and whatever that category might mean, but in modernism, in the inheritance of modernism, in cinema. I'm multiply located, but in a way that is made possible only by the fact that I grew up in India at a certain point of time. And I think people sort of ignore that inheritance that being in India gives you if you're from a certain kind of background. Or any kind of background to having access to these multiple cultural inheritances, which is why I can make music bringing together the Rag Thori with the the riff to Clapton's Layla. You know, it's something that happened at a certain point of time. I was singing Rag Thori in the morning and I suddenly heard the riff to Clapton's Layla. That's Eric Clapton. That's Eric Clapton. And that could only have happened because I grew up in India at a certain point of time. So that's what it means to me to be from that background, to be using various contexts to energize ways of looking at things, which has happened maybe with this novel too. And not necessarily meaning that you're writing about this big country and and this is your subject.
0: This new year, make a resolution to dust off that big idea. This Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace, a powerful platform that gives you simple tools to create a gorgeous website in minutes. With elegant templates, Getty image integration, and marketing tools, you can make your ideas resonate with the world. Try it at squarespace.com and use the offer code Guardian to get 10% off.
1: Amit Chowdhury's Odysseus Abroad is published by One World. The mythical character at the heart of Catherine Marshall's Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner is a very different kind of hero. According to Marcel, the modern world is constructed on the back of economic man, an archetype whose ancestry can be traced back to that pillar of the Enlightenment, Adam Smith. When she came to the Guardian, Marcel began by reading a passage from her story about women and economics which asks if there is any gap to be found between a market economy and a market society.
3: Many of us want to live in a market economy, but not in a market society. We have been taught that we must take the one with the other. Fidel Castro says that the only thing worse than being exploited by multinational capitalism is not being exploited by multinational capitalism. He may be right. There is no alternative, said Margaret Thatcher. Capitalism seemed, at least until the financial crisis of 2008, to have succeeded where all the great world religions had failed uniting humanity in a single fellowship, the global market. The market can decide what iron and silver should cost, what people's needs are, how much nannies, pilots and CEOs should earn, what she should pay for a lipstick, for a lawnmower, and to have her uterus surgically removed. The market dictates what it's worth for an investment bank to crash straight into the taxpayers' reserves, 70 million dollars a year, and what it is worth to hold an 87-year-old woman's anxious hand as she takes her last 700 breaths in a Scandinavian welfare state. 96 krona, around 8 pounds an hour. When Adam Smith got his dinner, he didn't think it was because the butcher and baker liked him. He thought it was that their interests were served through trade. It was self-interest that put dinner on the table for Adam Smith. Or was it? Who actually prepared that steak? Adam Smith never married, the father of economics lived with his mother for most of his life. She tended to the house and a cousin handled Adam Smith's finances. When Adam Smith was appointed as a Commissioner of Customs in Edinburgh, his mother moved with him. Her entire life she took care of her son and she is the part of the answer to the question of how we get our dinner that Adam Smith omits. For the butcher, the baker and the brewer to be able to go to work at the time Adam Smith was writing... Their wives, mothers or sisters had to spend hour after hour, day after day, minding the children, cleaning the house, cooking the food, washing the clothes, drying tears and squabbling with the neighbours. Wherever you look at the market, this is always built on another economy, an economy that we rarely discuss. The 11-year-old girl who walks 15 kilometres every morning to gather wood for her family plays a big part in her country's ability to develop economically, but her work isn't acknowledged. The girl is invisible in economic statistics. In the GDP calculation, which measures the total economic activity in a country, she isn't counted. What she does is not considered important for the economy or for growth. Giving birth to babies, raising children, cultivating a garden, cooking food for her siblings, milking the family cow, making clothes for her relatives or taking care of Adam Smith so he can write The Wealth of Nations, None of this is counted as productive activity in the standard economic models. Beyond the reach of the invisible hand, there is the invisible sex. The French author and feminist Simone de Beauvoir described woman as the second sex. It's the man who comes first, it's the man who counts. He defines the world and woman is the other. Everything he is not, but also that which he is dependent on so he can be who he is, be the one who counts. In the same way that there is a second sex, there is a second economy. The work that is traditionally carried out by men is what counts. It defines the economic worldview. Women's work is the other. Everything that he doesn't do, but that he is dependent on so he can do what he does, do the things that count.
1: So how did you wind up writing a story about women in economics?
3: Well, I was a journalist in Sweden covering the financial crisis, thinking a lot about financial crises and economics and all of these sort of things. And um, I felt that there needed to be a book with a feminist perspective on this. Feminist economics, if it's discussed at all, it's sort of if Lehman Brothers had been Lehman sisters, everything would have been different. And it's slightly more complicated than that. (laughs) Um, And that's what I wanted to do a book about.
1: Uh, Because it's not a textbook, is it? It's a kind of polemic wrapped up in a fable. Why did you decide to frame your argument that way As, as a kind of story?
3: Because I think it already is a story. And to sort of bring down one story, you need to tell another story. And Economic Man, who is the central character of, of standard economic theory, he is, he is a story. He's a story about this man or human beings as these rational people make perfect decisions, have perfect overview of our worlds, um, where emotions or bodies or uh, nothing like that matters. And that's the story of economic theory. And economic theory is very, very powerful in today's world. And this theory has been criticised a lot. And I wanted to sort of criticise it from a from a feminist angle, basically saying that this is a story about a man.
1: And tell a counter-story, And tell a
3: counter-story. And I also think I am criticising or making fun of sort of the rhetoric of economics and the, the, the words that economics use and sort of the power that that has. Uh, you know, someone says quantitative easing and sort of that's the end of the debate. And I don't think you can... Criticise that and still using the same language and the same rhetoric. You have to somehow deconstruct how we talk about economics. Yes. And the stories are good for that.
1: So tell us the story then. Who is Economic Man?
3: Economic Man in standard economic theory or in my book. Ah, well. Uh, <laughs> well, so Economic Man, he is the, what economists say is economically relevant in us. And he's um, a person, perfectly rational, who uh, always knows what he wants, who is driven by self-interest and who sort of calculates everything in his life um you know from what's best serves his his self-interest and then economics often express him in you know abstract mathematics and equations and so on but that is the uh, that's the central character economics professors they love to sort of you know in introductory courses they talk about Robinson Crusoe on you know the the lonely man on an island who sort of is is very rational you know the character in 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 the novel and builds this sort of you know, quite primitive economy on, on this island. And, um, you know, what can a, a story about a completely lo- alone man on an island tell us about this very complicated thing consisting of lots of people, lots of countries and lots of processes that is the global economy today? So, but, but he's been criticised a lot. But what I'm saying is, look, every sort of characteristic of this person are the same characteristics that we have been taught through hundreds of years to view as masculine. And that is not a coincidence.
1: And it's also uh, economic man leaves choices for women to either, as it were, join him or become his mirror.
3: Exactly. Yes. So everything that is excluded from economic theory, sort of, you know, dependency, family, relationships, the body, uh, emotions, are the same things that sort of, uh, you know, even love. These sort of things, these are the things that women sort of have to embody or it has been called feminine and has been excluded from the economy. And this is what women has to be. So the choices, as you say, left for women is sort of become economic man, this self-interested, rational creature, uh, or be the thing that he needs for the world to sort of become whole.
1: The unacknowledged glue, as it were, exactly. but it, and it's kind of fundamental problem. It's not this kind of little tiny detail. No, it's exactly. a fundamental. right back to the beginning, where exactly. where Adam Smith decided to try and divide up society into these kind of individual units.
3: Yeah. Uh, well, or that was so sort of more people interpreting Adam Smith, actually. But, uh, but yes, so the, you know, the fundamental question of economics is how do you get your dinner? And as I'm pointing out, it's uh, <laughs> he lived his whole life with his mother, and maybe she had something to do with it, not just the butcher and the baker and the brewer, as in the famous quote. So that's, that's a little story about Adam Smith that I tell to try to make people think about this.
1: And it's this myth of the individual is very attractive. I mean, we're born into dependence, as, as you point out. I mean, Virginia Held argues that our natural state is to be enveloped by our dependency to others. And this yeah. is just kind of invisible in mm. most of our stories about the world.
3: Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, so what it really what made me want to write a book was because I was very, very interested in... You know, this sort of character of economic man, he has been criticised by so many people. You know, people have won Nobel Prizes for proving that he doesn't exist, you know. In in psychological experiments, the only people who sort of slightly conform to this model of human behaviour are children under five, you know. Everyone else... you know, we, we consider other people when we make decisions, et cetera. And I was interested in how can it be that he's been so criticized, we know that he, he doesn't exist, but we still sort of cling on to him. And economics, you know, and these kind of theories can still be so important in society. So what I'm, you know, arguing in the book is that um, it's, it has to do with that it's a very sort of seductive, like we've been seduced. He's a, he's a seductive man. He's, um, you know... um. Like Christian Grey in Fifty Shades (laughs) of Grey. (laughs) Or, you know, it's this idealised picture of masculinity, this sort of completely rational, always knows what he wants, he's not dependent on anyone, you know. That is a character that we have in other kinds of books as well. It's a seductive idea that if we could be like that then our lives would be a lot easier you know and I think that is part of the appeal of economics is this seductive universe where everything is rational everything can be understood by us humans and we're not dependent on anyone else.
1: So it's more about the kind of power of this story than any kind of shady conspiracy by the 1%?
3: Well, you know, I mean, that's a different book, and there's a lot of different books about the shady conspiracies. But, I mean, obviously, that is a part of it, that there is a certain kind of group that has benefited materially a lot from from this story, because, of course, if you believe this story, then inequality isn't a problem, because if you have lots of money, it means that... That's what the market has decided, and you have earned it. And then you shouldn't sort of interfere in the market. So obviously there are a group of people, the 1%, as you mentioned, who've um, made a lot of money from, from this, or at least you know, have not had their money taken away by the state because of the power of this story. But that's not really what I'm interested in in the book, because I think often books about that can become... When you talk about you know, neoliberalism, or especially books that come from a sort of centre-left perspective is is neoliberalism is viewed as this big sort of monster you know out there and i was more interested in neoliberalism within us sort of in me and in you and why are we seduced by this story. And I was, you know, thinking a lot about all these books that sort of apply economic principles to everyday situations, you know, Freakonomics, Spousonomics, Discover Your Inner Economist, and this sort of economic imperialism, as, you know, where we sort of apply these very sort of simplistic models about the market to our, you know, most inner feelings and uh, most sort of intimate relationships and what that does to us.
1: It was one of the reasons why you wanted to frame it as a story was partly to control your own anger at the kind of at the state of the world the injustice I'm not angry. you're not angry
3: <laughs> you're not <laughs> I angry. am angry <laughs> I am angry uh yes yeah and I make fun I think with sort of economics and economists and um and I think that's a um it's something there hopefully works.
1: It's a kind of weapon in the debate. Yeah, yeah. There's to kind of point the finger and say, look over here, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Because exactly. it is ridiculous. It's a world where where everyone is assumed to be driven by competitive instincts, but nevertheless, you have to molly them and give them tax breaks so they're really competitive. It's a world where, where you know, everyone is supposed to be competing for every everything all the time, but never within the family. It's kind of crazy, insane picture.
3: Yes. Yes. Yes, and I think that we need to sort of talk about that more. And I think it's, it's a problem. I mean, I really wanted to write a book about economics for people who might not sort of read the EFT every day, because I think lots of people are afraid of economics, people who are very interested in society and in politics and in literature and in all these other things. But when it comes to economics, many people say, Maybe especially women sort of, no, that's not for me. But I think it is in- incredibly important to understand it and also understand that it's, it's not that difficult.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's part of the problem as well that economics isn't so much a scientific discipline, as almost kind of belief system.
3: Yeah, like a religion. There are sort of theologists that, you know, talk about the belief in the efficient market as some sort of God hypothesis. And absolutely, it's, uh, I, think it's, I think economics is in many ways the religion of our time. And we don't, you know, we build the, you know, we can see the city of London as the cathedrals, right? That we build to this deity, and um, and we need to talk about it. Is this is this the religion we want?
1: Uh, so, if Margaret Thatcher is wrong when she suggests there's no alternative, then what is it? What's what's the <laughs> counter story? <laughs>
3: well, the counter story. Many people ask me if it's economic wo- woman, and it's not. I think um, I think if you are a person who is not happy with the state of things if you're sort of upset with inequality and you know how the one percent is just grabbing more and more and you know just and even just sort of feeling that you know, in your own life, is this really what it's about, this thing that we're living in, then the economy and economics is very, very important. I mean, if you're somebody who thinks everything is just great, then of course, you can sort of afford to have economics be this completely abstract game dealing with the completely made up person as economic man, Uh, it doesn't matter. But if you actually want to change the world and change society, uh, you need to have economics as your tool. And then economics actually has to be more about the real world and less about this fictional character. Um, And I think that is the alternative. It it will not be as sexy, you know, or uh, and like a theory that can explain everything, or it won't be, might not even be as sort of elegant, you know, in terms of maths and equations, etc. But it will be more real. And I think it's, you know, study actual markets, you know, these sort of things. And of course, there are lots of economists who do that. But still, this is standard economic theory. This is still what, what you know, is being taught at universities and when we say to think like an economist that means to think about people as economic man and that needs to change.
1: That also means that instead of having this main character, this economic man who you say is so seductive, this Mm. idea that he understands everything, controls everything, only works for the best interest as he sees them, there needs to be some other character or some other set of characters who can replace that narrative.
3: Yes and It won't be one person because I think the world is too complex and I think um, and I think that's the hard part you can't just sort of let's get rid of him and let's put economic woman in his place or something like that but we need to bring in all these things that have been excluded from from economics you know emotions women's work all of these sort of things needs to be sort of brought back in and I think economics should be again about how do you translate a social vision into a working economic system? And I think an economics that actually studies the world and studies actual things can help us with that and needs to help us with that.
1: Is there a kind of hint in Julie Nelson's suggestion that economics should be framed as the science which studies how humans satisfy their requirements and enjoy the delights of life using the free gifts of nature?
3: Exactly. So She's trying to sort of turn the story about the rational economic man in a, in a world of scarcity into its complete opposite. And that's, that's what you just read. And I've included it in the book, because I think it just shows you how different economics could be just from a different starting point. And I think that it really matters.
1: Do you think that 2008 was a missed opportunity? Or do you think there's still the bones of something there?
3: Well, I I'm am I'm an optimist <laughs> by nature. And I think if you take the last big financial crisis of 1929, it took quite a few years before sort of Keynes published a general theory, etc. So I think economics is changing. And I think there is a very exciting debate going on about it and about uh, which I think inevitably will change things and is changing things. And then, of course, lots of people are wanting to change faster. But what I want to bring in is, you know, in that debate I want to bring in the feminist perspective as well
1: Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner is published by Portobello next week we'll be examining the perils of parenthood with Eula Biss and Kate Hamer you can find us on iTunes follow us on SoundCloud or on the Guardian Books website just search for Guardian Books Podcast thanks to Amit Chowdhury Katrine Massal and Claire Armistead For me Richard Lee and our producer Eva Krzyak see you next time
2: For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.